0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com.
1: About 30 years ago, there were a group of, uh, a small group of families that were looking to, to start a church, uh, which ended up being Faith Bible Church. As those families were meeting together and looking on processes and how we start a church and looking for a pastor, uh, they reached out to uh, Faith Church in Lafayette, Indiana. You've heard us talk, quite often about that church how we have sent people there for a biblical counseling training a number of the missionary candidates that we've brought forth have either been associated with uh, faith lafayette or have gone there for uh, biblical counseling training as well Uh, we love faith church in lafayette and we are so thankful for the special connection we have with them today we have a uh, uh, a pastor who's going to come speak with speak to us today uh, Dr. Brent O'Quinn is the president of Faith Ch- uh, Seminary. He is the chairman of, uh, excuse me, chair of the seminary's MDiv program, pastor of seminary and soul care at Faith Church. He's ACBC certified instructor and counselor at Faith Biblical Counseling Ministries and a retreat and conference speaker. He and his wife Janet have two adult children, and we're going to uh, invite Brent to come up here and speak with us this morning.
0: Thank you, and uh, thank you, worship team, for leading us so well this morning. I appreciate the worship, and certainly counted a privilege to be with you. And it's the providence of God that I was scheduled to preach this weekend because uh, Pastor Beal is not feeling well. So uh, I was coming down for a conference over at Northwood, a marriage retreat. And um, earlier this year, I with uh, the trials that have been going on in the eight, last 18 months or so, I. I offered to Pastor Beal that um, if any way I could be an encouragement to him, I'd be happy to do so. And he invited me to preach um, one time and I said, well, let's just do the day that I'm down here anyway for the conference or the retreat. And um, in God's providence, um, God allowed him to be um, not feeling very well, and um, he didn't actually have to plan a replacement because I I was already coming anyway. So um, I appreciate Pastor Beal. He was one of the students at Faith Bible Seminary from 2013 to 2016, where he was a disciplined and a careful and a humble learner, and I'm very thankful for him and his... um, growth and godliness over the years, and now him taking the helm of Faith Bible Church. So it's great to be with you here this morning. At my church, Faith in Lafayette, um, we've been studying the Gospel of John, and I recently was on the preaching rotation and had to speak from a portion of John 13, and it was an encouragement to me, and so that's what I'm going to bring to you today. So as we launch into this, let me show you here the... um, Roman Colosseum. That Colosseum stands as a symbol of the Roman Empire. Behind the Colosseum's role as a preeminent tourist attraction is a history of violent horror. Two millennia ago, amusement-seeking onlookers would watch gladiators fight to the death. And the Colosseum was also the site where followers of Christ were thrown to the lions as this new group of folks known as Christians or Christ followers, became noticeable to the Roman world, and they were blamed for a lot of the ails of that Roman world, and they were persecuted. The violence of the Roman Empire is difficult for us here in the Western civilization to imagine. However, this historical violence is always on display for Christians, whether or not we are aware of it, because... The violence of the Roman Empire has been enshrined in God's providence, in Christianity, in the central feature of Christianity, and that's the cross. In God's providence, the exact tool demonstrating the epitome of human violence was precisely what God chose to use to redeem humanity from their violent ways. There's a recent British author, and he's a professed atheist, who studied ancient Rome civilization because of his infatuation with the strength and power of that civilization. But he soon came to some very uncomfortable conclusions about the nature of, well, his infatuation with Rome. He said this. He said, The longer I spent immersed in the study of classical antiquity, the more alien and unsettling I came to find it. The values of Leonidas, whose people had practiced a peculiar and murderous form of eugenics and trained their young to kill uppity, and there's a German word there, but it means persons considered to be inferior. He trained them to kill by night. Those values were nothing that I recognized as my own, nor were the values of Caesar who was reported to have killed a million Gauls and enslaved a million more. It was not just the extreme callousness that I came to find shocking, but the lack of a sense that the poor or the weak might have any intrinsic value. That British author was Tom Holland. And young folks, if you're thinking Spider-Man guy, this is not the same Spider-Man. So, (laughs) British, yeah, but if you do a search for the Tom Holland British, you'll get the Spider-Man guy, so um, this is atheist, professed atheist and author Tom Holland. Now, I know we have numerous issues and problems in our society, and it would seem now it's getting worse. However, Western civilization as we know it today is, if you can imagine, more civil than in ancient times. Tom Holland struggled to imagine why Western civilization, as we know it, could have descended from the violent Roman Empire. How could we have arrived where we are today as atheist? I keep saying that. He has Christian roots in the Anglican, his family, his mother was an Anglican, his father was an atheist, so he has Christian roots. But Tom Holland struggled to imagine why we were civilized and we were descendants from the Roman Empire as he researched this he discovered here's what he discovered the transforming agent what could have changed the roman empire to uh, generations later have a more civilized society tom holland goes on to explain when saint paul declared we preach christ crucified unto the jews a stumbling block and unto the greeks foolishness He was right. Nothing could have run more counter to the most profoundly held assumptions of Paul's contemporaries, Jews or Greeks or Romans. The notion that a God might have suffered torture and death on a cross was so shocking as to appear repulsive. Familiarity, our familiarity with the biblical narrative of the crucifixion has dulled our sense of just how completely novel a deity Christ was. Listen to this. In the ancient world, it was the role of gods who laid claim to the ruling universe to uphold its order by inflicting punishment, not to suffer for it themselves. Today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two millennial old revolution that Christianity represents— it is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who now live in a post-Christian society still take for granted that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It is why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. And he goes on to say this, in my morals and ethics, and this is atheist, say atheist, okay, say atheist, atheist. Atheist. Atheist Tom Holland says, In my moral and values, I've learned to accept that I'm not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. Now, he's not a Christian, and he's not converted. He's actually an honest atheist. What is it that can transform humanity from its darkness bent on destruction? If you will, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. We'll be focusing today on verse 21 through 38, and your worship leader, as he was giving the little devotion and exhortation on friendship. I actually quoted a, a verse from the, from the passage we're reading this morning. thought that was highly ironic. Maybe not ironic if you know God because he's, he's providential. Um, I didn't plan that. I didn't know he was going to say that. In John chapter 13, we are at the point in the gospel of John where Jesus is less than 24 hours away from his torturous Roman violent crucifixion. One action in our text today, one, will start the chain of events leading to his violent death. And that's Judas's betrayal. For just a moment, imagine what you would be doing if you knew in less than 24 hours you would face one of the most excruciating forms of death known to man. What would you be doing? <laughs> I don't know that we'd be doing what we find Jesus doing. Here in John chapter 13, verse 1. Here's what Jesus was doing. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, here's what he was doing. He loved them to the end. Let's read about these intense but powerful moments of Jesus with his disciples less than 24 hours before his violent Roman crucifixion. I'm going to actually start in verse 17. So look at verse 17, if you will, with me. Here's what the Word of God says. Jesus says this, If you know these things, what things? The things that Jesus had just done, washing the disciples' feet. So as that act of service, of cleansing their feet, symbolic of what he would do in less than 24 hours from this moment in time, where he would cleanse them from their sins by his sacrifice on the cross. So if you know this kind of act of service, you are blessed if you do them. Verse 18, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones that I have chosen, but it's that Scripture may be fulfilled. And he quotes here from Psalm chapter 41, verse 9. And in, the, in that verse, the first phrase of that verse is a close friend of mine. He doesn't quote that, but he quotes the last phrase. The one who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Verse 19, from now on I'm telling you these things before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you that he who receives whomever I send, okay, so have in your mind the the disciples who are going to be sent out, so whoever receives the disciples receives me, and the one who receives me receives him, God the Father, the one who sent me. And the moment Jesus said that, so the next verse, the moment he said that, something happened. He became troubled in spirit. Why did he become troubled? We'll talk about that. How does And how does anybody know he became troubled? Did he break down and cry? No. But how do we know that at that moment he was grieved or troubled? We'll discuss that in just a moment. So he said, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, the one one of you will betray me.' And the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of whom he was speaking. But there was one reclining on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, and that is probably the author of this gospel, the man John." Um, He was reclining on Jesus' bosom, and he had the closest proximity to Jesus and Jesus' demeanor throughout the evening, and that's probably why the Gospel of John records, unlike any other gospel, the intimate details of that upper room discourse there before Jesus' crucifixion. And on special dining occasions, and this was one they ate in a reclined fashion, If I ate in a reclined fashion, I would have food all over me. That's a different story. But they did this on a special occasion that Jesus had set up for them. So John was lying beside Jesus here has an intimate eyewitness account and could begin to discern when Jesus became troubled. Verse 24, So Simon Peter gestured to him, John, and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. In the disciples' surprise disbelief regarding betrayal, they wanted to know about a salacious piece of news about one of their own. In verse 25, John, leaning back on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus then answered, probably quietly and softly only to John, so that John the Apostle would know here, this is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas and the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. And therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, and this he probably said publicly, what you do, do quickly. And no one of those reclining at the table, except John, obviously knew for what purpose he had said this. For some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, go and buy the things we need for the feast or else go and give some of the money to the poor. Verse 30, after receiving the morsel, Judas went out immediately and it was night. Now, John, the apostle here, seems to put these notices in the text, it was night. Or if you know the gospel of John in John chapter 10, he says, it was winter, He probably put these notices in here, not simply and only to tell us about the times or the season, but also to tell us about the mood or the situation. John has been putting forward these themes of darkness and light throughout his gospel. From the very first chapter, he introduced the gospel with these words, In Jesus was life, and that life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. And now in our passage today, this is the hour of darkness for Jesus. Man's treachery will be such that the actions tonight in this text will set in motion the events of the dark hour of Jesus' crucifixion. This hour of Jesus' darkness will be, however, the hour of his darkness will be where he shines the brightest Notice verse 31, therefore, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man lit up. (laughs) The word there is glorified. I'm using the Brent translation of lit up. And God is lit up in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately in the next few hours. Throughout the book of John, Jesus is constantly referred to this dark hour as the hour of him being lit up, his glorification. A little ironic here, the hour of extreme darkness is when he will be shining the brightest. Verse 33, notice the tender affection now that he turns to his disciples. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer and you're going to seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Say with me, I cannot come. Say that, I cannot come. That'll be important in just a moment. So a new commandment, this is what your worship leader said this morning, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. We'll discuss why that's a new commandment in a moment. By this, all men will know that you are disciples if you have love for one another. And Simon Peter, in his usual way, said, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot come, but you will follow later. Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? And I'm going to lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times Today, I want to speak to you about beholding Jesus' light in the hour of his deepest darkness. And there are three aspects here of Jesus' brilliant light that will forever define what love is right here in the hour of his deepest darkness. And the first one is this the first aspect of Jesus' brilliant light that defines love as a love that loves all, including enemies including enemies, until the very end. In God's humorous um, providence today, um, a gentleman up here read Psalm 58, an imprecatory psalm. (laughs) And I'm speaking on loving your enemies as well. So you may say, Pastor Brent, how do you reconcile all of those things? Well, that's why Bryce Beal has his seminary degree from Faith Bible Seminary. Ask him how to reconcile all of these things. But at least wait till he gets over his sickness, okay? So the Apostle John, as I mentioned, has a unique place in the events of the hour of darkness in Jesus' life. We're gonna receive details of the evening that only an eyewitness near Jesus would have known. So when Jesus said, when Jesus said this, those who are going to receive the apostolic ministry post-resurrection. If you receive their message, you receive Jesus, and if they receive Jesus, you receive God the Father. At that precise moment, John, the intimate eyewitness, records and observes Jesus became troubled. Why? (laughs) This actually is the same trouble that Jesus experienced over his friend Lazarus in John chapter 11. That trouble is grief. Jesus experienced grief the moment he said that. Why? Well, Judas, one who had eaten nearly every meal with Jesus over the last three years, one who had traveled across the land of Israel with Jesus over the last three years, one in whom, like all the disciples, Jesus had personally invested in. Judas was Jesus' friend. However, unlike Lazarus, when Jesus says, those who receive me receive the Father, Jesus' mind immediately knows the one who has not received him. And Jesus grieves over Judas. If Jesus' words and mission described throughout the Gospel of John are true, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. If that is true, Jesus knows, and it is true, that Judas, Jesus' friend, was destined to perish. And loving Judas until the end, Jesus will do something here that most commentators think is an act of love. Picking up the piece of bread and giving it to Judas was an act of love. Give this morsel. Two observations here for our notice. Number one, Judas most likely was on the other side of Jesus opposite John. So imagine that. Throughout the Gospels, we know the disciples were arguing about who's on the right and who's on the left. Two disciples, one on the right, one on the left. These are places of honor. And Jesus had known about Judas' betrayal, and he still placed, he still placed Judas near himself. Loving till the end. Second observation, Jesus dipping that piece of bread and giving it to Judas was likely a final act of decisive love. D.A. Carson says this, It is more consistent with the picture of Jesus in the gospel to think that this piece of bread was a final gesture of supreme love, loving them till the end. And at the same time, that final act of love becomes with a terrible immediacy The decisive moment of judgment as well. At this moment, we are witnessing the climax of that action of sifting and separating and judgment, which has been a central theme of the Gospel of John. Who's going to believe and who's not? So, that final gesture of affection, the final act of love precipitates the final surrender of Judas to the power of darkness. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has neither understood it nor mastered it. Judas received the bread, but not the love. Instead of breaking him and urging him to contrition, it hardened his resolve. That was D.A. Carson. Judas was near Jesus physically, but oh, so far in hearts. We could have an entire sermon on that. Um, congregation members being near to Jesus, near the things of God, but being so far in heart. That's a whole nother story. That's not what I want to focus on. Today what I want to focus on is the love of Jesus. Even those who turned out to be his enemies, he loved until the very, very end. We see our Savior's heart there. Till the end, not wishing any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Church, let me ask you this morning, what are you troubled by the most in the beginning of college years? Is it the syllabi shock? Is that it? (laughs) When you're coming back to school, the syllabi shock, I understand that. What are you troubled by the most? Are you troubled by politics? Or specifically that politician that is far from God and perishing like Jesus would have been? Are you troubled by the, in general, the LGBTQ plus movement or specifically that gay, transgendered individual that you know is perishing without God? Is that what troubles your heart the most? Are you troubled by the self-righteous, judgmental, religious right or specifically that that self-righteous person you know who is trusting in his own self-righteousness? will perish without Christ's righteousness. Are you troubled by the status of the world's condition we find ourselves in today and it's horrific? We think of the situation in Afghanistan right now. Or, or are you specifically troubled and grieving over those who without Jesus will not make it to the next world? I confess that loving those who are difficult to love till the end like Jesus is a difficult task. As Christians, we say that we love the world, and in C.S. Lewis's words, it's easy to be loving and enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H. It's easier to do that in general than it is to love particular individual man or woman, especially those who are uninteresting or exasperating or depraved or otherwise unattractive, or I'm adding this, our enemies. C.S. Lewis didn't say that one. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Who are you loving till the end like Jesus? Jesus loved all, even his enemies, until the very end. So the first aspect of Jesus' brilliant light here defines love as a love that loves all, including enemies, until the very end. Number two, secondly, the second aspect of Jesus' brilliant light defines love as a love that loves uniquely. The moment Judas leaves for his act of betrayal, the chain of events are set in motion for Jesus' dark hour. And again, throughout the Gospel of John, John used the phrase, but Jesus' hour had not come yet. All that he did prior, the miracles, the signs, the love shown, the raising of Lazarus, while all of this was monumental, was not, however, his hour. All of that was a precursor. All of that was the opening act to the main event. All of it was the appetizer to the main meal. For now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. This was the hour of his shining or him being lit up. This is the hour of distinction from the entire rest of the known world regarding the way the world operates, the way the power systems of the world operates. You ask, how is that, Brett? Well. The strong and the powerful are the greatest. The popular have the greatest influence. The wealthy have access to justice. The poor and the weak, the inconsequential, are oppressed. That's the way of the world. This is the hour of distinction from the entire rest of the known world regarding the way the so-called gods operate, lording it over their subjects, inflicting punishment and wrath from a detached distance. This is the hour of distinction from the entire rest of the known world regarding the way that every other religion operates. Say every, say every with, say that. Every other religion other than biblical, rightly understood Christianity. You say, how is that? Every other religion has the operation of a never-ending treadmill of performance or works-based orientation so that you can appease a particular god out there that's every other religion this is the hour of distinction this is the hour about which tom holland the atheist the honest atheist says nothing could have run more counter to the most profoundly held assumptions of the world systems it was the role of gods who laid claim to ruling the universe to uphold its order by inflicting punishment, not to lowly suffer for it themselves. This is the hour that would change history, change the way that we reckon time itself, to label history as before Christ or A.D. in the age of our Lord. This is the hour of God's grand demonstration in the darkest hour. And Jesus said this, where I am going, you cannot come. Based upon Jesus' statement of where I go, you cannot follow me, there is something utterly unique here about this that is not repeatable. Only Jesus could do this. Only God could demonstrate this kind of love and forever, forever define love. And that's why Jesus was never just some kind of a good teacher that did some good things and then you tried to emulate him and earn favor with God. That's not how this works. Only God could accomplish this. John Piper states this, We don't go to heaven to the Father beside Jesus, assisting him in some way, or behind Jesus, imitating him in some way, We go to the Father through Jesus. Only He could do this, depending upon Him. Where am I going this night, Jesus says, that you cannot follow? I am going to die for you and thus become the only way to God. You can't follow me now. Only I can do this. This is my work alone. You know, as we behold the last events of the 24 hours here in Jesus' life, it's heart-wrenching to see. Judas, Jesus' close friend, betrays him unto death. Peter will deny him three times after boasting he would die with Jesus. And all of those sharing this special occasion dinner that Jesus put on for his disciples that night, all of them will abandon him in the darkest hour of Jesus. And we ask, why did it have to be this way? It must be this way. Because here is the reality. There is no natural capacity within mankind to be faithful, to love until the end, to be loyal until the end. There is no natural capacity for that. And that's exactly why we needed something outside of ourselves to come and save us. And that is why Jesus is alone in this divine love and he will forever be unique. Friend, that's why you'll never arrive at heaven by your own supposed good deeds, somehow imitating this. Jesus says you cannot follow me in this way. I know in a congregation of this size there are some who are, don't fully understand what I'm talking about. Maybe you're still trying to be like all of the rest of the religions and doing something good in order to appease some kind of God up there. Maybe it's the one you believe in, the creator God, but you're trying to appease him, trying to emulate something Jesus did as good. Jesus said, you cannot follow me like this. This is for me alone. And he did it so that you could have a way to heaven when you believe and trust in him alone. If you don't know that... You don't believe that remember his unique act of love to judas loving him to the end and this is what he's doing to you you know his heart for you loving you to the end and don't let this act seal you in some kind of a judgment but let the act break your heart and accept christ as your savior The first aspect of Jesus' brilliant light defines love as a love that loves all, including enemies, until the very end. The second aspect of Jesus' brilliant light defines love as a love that loves uniquely. And finally, the third aspect of Jesus' brilliant light defines love as a love that transforms those who believe. You know, most of us know about Peter's transformation from denying Christ predicted in this passage to being restored and become the first pastor of the early church as recorded in the book of Acts. But intimate eyewitness John's transformation may be a little less known. In fact, this hour of Jesus' darkness where Jesus' brilliant light of love was shining the brightest light left an impact, a lasting impact on the one who was leaning on Jesus' bosom. Um, Faith Bible Church, do you remember the name Jesus originally gave the Apostle John and his brother James? Do you remember the name he originally gave John and James? Anybody remember that? Sons of what? Sons of Thunder. In Mark 3.17, John and his brother James were given the name Sons of Thunder, most likely because of a passage like this that we read about James and John, Luke 9, 54. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, what is this? That, that this, is, this is These are my words here, not Scripture, that the Samaritans did not extend hospitality to them. James and John said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and to consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You don't know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's life, but to save them. Jesus had named John a son of thunder, one calling lightning down to consume enemies. And in this upper room, intimate night, where one enemy who had never accepted Jesus was lying on one side, that was Judas, but then there was another enemy of God, John, that had accepted Jesus, was lying on the other side, John witnessed Jesus' brilliant light of love for his enemies. And Jesus' brilliant light of love transformed the one who wanted to destroy enemies. John went from being known as the son of thunder. When you hear about the apostle John today, he is called the apostle of what? Does anybody know? The apostle of what? He's the apostle of love. And I want you to see how much this evening had transformed John as well. So notice here the impactful moments of these, this intimate time that John had with Jesus. And here's what I want you to see. Impact number one. Jesus had said, little children in tender affection. That was a term of affection for these men, even though we know from the other Gospels that after Judas left... And the disciples started arguing about who's betraying who and who's the greatest. We know that from the other Gospels. All of this was less than 24 hours before Jesus' crucifixion. And the disciples could not see past their immediate ambitions, let alone love Jesus till the end. But Jesus still loves them, loves his enemies, and has such a tender affection for them. Little children, he calls them as a term of endearment. And let me show you this. John the Apostle would later write, he would write to a congregation. And I want you to see the terminology he uses. My little children, I'm writing these things. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven. Now, little children, little children, make sure no one deceives you. Little children, let us not love with word and tongue, but indeed in deed and truth. You are from God, little children. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. That's how he ends his epistle. And that's not all. Impact number two on the Apostle John. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. And John says, John says himself, a new commandment to love one another in 1 John 2, 7 through 12. And here I want you to notice the definition of love that John will pick up forever. Impact number three, Jesus says that as I have loved you, and notice now how John will define love. Here's how he defines it We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And he goes on, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the, excuse me, the propitiation for our sins. And beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And finally, we love because he first loved us. The Apostle John, the son of thunder, was one who wanted to destroy his enemies. He's the one who's now been transformed to love. How? Precisely by Jesus's unique love. Jesus' brilliant light in this extreme hour of his darkness has become the epitome of of what love is, and it is a transforming love, and that is why Jesus says now, a new commandment. And in what sense is this, loving another, a new commandment? Well, here it is. Never before has God displayed to the world this standard, this measure, this highest resolution picture of his love for us in the flesh, like that in Jesus right here in the darkest hour. And here it is in front of us, and this becomes the highest motivation, the agent of change that Jesus would have us now grow into. Notice what Jesus said to Peter. He went from, you you cannot come with me now, but later, later you can follow. Peter also, the apostle, the one who would deny Christ before this hour of darkness is over, would ultimately also be transformed. He had become the great shepherd of the early church, the leader of the early church, and one who would lay down his life for the one who had laid down his life for him. Church tradition has it that Peter was crucified as a martyr for Christ on a cross as well. Most, the church tradition says upside down. Do you remember in what city, though? What city was Peter crucified in? We'll, we'll go back to where we started in the sermon. What city was Peter crucified in? Anybody Remember? It was Rome, okay. and now from the heart of Rome and the Western civilization, the value system of Christ in the year of our Lord A.D. has now permeated Western civilization. I know we have our issues today. I know that, but as Tom Holland observed, something happened then. So violent Rome, violent Rome and Western civilization had been transformed in some ways. Now, Faith Bible Church, little children, my term of affection, even though I don't know all of you, I know your leader, I know your senior pastor here. Little children, let's have a little bit of a pastoral moment right now. You know, I recognize that in a church like Faith Bible Church, there are many folks here who have beheld the unique love of Christ that loves to the end and has allowed that love to transform you. Thank you for your faithfulness to Christ. But now in our post-Christian society that seems to be growing ever darker, now, now is not the time for retreat. Now is not the time for fear and anxiety. That night with Jesus in the upper room was not his time for fear and anxiety. In his darkest moment, it was the time for him to shine the brightest, So like our Savior, although we could not do what Jesus did for the world, we are called to follow him now in these dark hours, doubling down on our love for our enemies, our love for our neighbors, those who have betrayed us, those who are persecuting you. That's what he calls us to excel still more now. And a faith Bible church is like faith church back in Lafayette where I serve. This is the time of year that is like New Year's to you. So for us, college students are back, um, parents are putting their kids back in school, and um, they're considering how they're going to re-engage their church routines possibly. Now is the time that we excel still more and reach out and love flows as we behold the unique love of Christ be transformed even more so that the love of Christ might shine brightly in these darkening times. Secondly, little children, there's an implicit challenge in a love that transforms. If Christ's unique love is not transforming you, little children, The Apostle Peter, the one who was transformed. Remember, he denied Christ, but he was transformed. The Apostle Peter would say in 2 Peter 1-9, if these qualities, the transforming qualities of you growing are not being evidenced in you, that we are blind and short-sighted, having forgotten our former purification from sin. You have set your eyes on something else other than the unique love of Christ." So, my question for you, little children, if the love of Christ is not transforming you, will you seek out some help? Will you allow it to transform you in your role as a husband? The announcement that was given men about going to that men's conference, that men's retreat, you need to be there. College students, young men, you need to be there as well so you learn how to function as a man. If Christ's love is not transforming you, you've forgotten your former purification from sin. Your eye is off the unique love of Christ. So will you allow it to transform you in your role as a husband or a wife or a parent or a church member or students or in your work? If you're not, little children, please reach out to your pastors and elders and set up something immediately so you can begin to be transformed by that unique love of Christ. In the hour of Jesus' greatest darkness, his light of glorification shines the brightest. Defining love as a love that loves all, including enemies, until the very end. A love that loves uniquely, and finally, a love that transforms those who believe. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you provided an intimate eyewitness account for the heart of Christ in the midst of those, the hour of his darkness. and We pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on this. Thank you for revealing it in the scriptures. And help us, Father, help us now as we see the love of Christ who loved all, even the enemies until the end. A love that was unique. And now, Father, allow that to transform us so that we might love like him in these dark times. We pray these things Christ.